Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. All right. Hello. Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I am your host, Jason Napolitano, and I have, as always, my wonderful co-host, Chris Sheridan, on the line. What's up, Chris? Uh, everything's up. It's great to be here and talking about uh, this subject for today. I'm excited. I am excited as well. This is, is going to be a great one. And actually, we can thank one of our listeners. His name is Adam, who sent us uh, the suggestion to talk about Rudolf Steiner today. Uh, and I may go back and forth between Steiner and Steiner because uh, I'm not exactly sure which one it is. And my German is non-existent. Uh, Chris, you have a little more German and you like the Steiner pronunciation. Uh, but both of us will probably go in and out of it. So forgive us, Steiner or Steiner from beyond the grave. Forgive us for slaughtering your name. We're doing our best here, though. Uh, we, do, we, are, we are trying to uphold uh, at least what you were teaching. And even if we don't get your name uh, exactly right. Speaking of that, if anyone speaks, uh, speaks German well and knows that, please, uh, please hit us up uh, through Cosmic Eye. Uh, dot org and let me know the actual pronunciation of that so that I in the future can move forward correctly. Uh, I am the author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. Chris is the author of The Spirit in the Sky, which is a story of, of him uh, and his uh, spiritual experience he had before he crashed in a plane, a very dramatic and moving story. I suggest you all read it. It is excellent. It's available on Amazon or on chrissheridan.com. And my book is on Amazon. Uh, or cosmiceye.org where I said we can be reached. Uh, you can hit, hit us up through there if you have a suggestion for a show. Uh, also, please uh, support the show if you can. I mean, we love doing this show. And we, you know, we certainly will do it whether we're supported or not. However, uh, it does help a great deal if you can provide some financial support and you can do that through uh, anchor.fm slash cosmiceye C-O-S-M-I-C-E-Y-E with no spaces in it. Uh, and you can click on uh, the support us uh, there and either support us for 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99 a month, which is uh, much appreciated if you can do it. And thank you again to the supporters who are supporting. All right. So Rudolf Steiner, we are getting into him today. Uh, we're talking about his book, Christianity as a mystical fact. We will probably only get into the very, very uh, basic ideas of that book, the very first part of it, because uh, mostly we're going to start with uh, sort of an outline, historical biographical outline of Rudolf Steiner, who he was, uh, some of his work, some of his influence and so on. And then we will get into this, uh, this book a bit. And, you know, Steiner himself uh, started uh, anthroposophy, did start it, but it was an outgrowth of his teachings. Um, and, uh, he was uh, responsible for biodynamic farming, which you may have heard of. He also um, was instrumental in starting the Steiner schools, which uh, are known here as the Waldorf schools. Apparently a company called Waldorf was a tobacco company, I think in Germany or in Austria that uh, supported those schools in the beginning. And thus they got the name Waldorf um, as well as uh, some, some different uh, inventions and arts um, that uh, Steiner and his his ideas are responsible for. He's very influential. Uh, in some ways, some people call him the most influential esotericist uh, of the uh, of the 19th and early 20th century. 
So we are talking about him today, as I said, in his book, Christianity as a Mystical Fact, which is a book that was taken from a series of lectures, I think from 1902, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Steiner apparently gave over 6,000 lectures. Is that what you remember, Chris? 6,000? Sounds like somebody else we know, Mr. Manley Hall. Exactly. So these two were both prolific uh, lecturers. And as as Mr. Hall's work is, uh, much of uh, Steiner's work is his lectures that were put into book form. Um, But he had a beautiful way of speaking. And the books are actually, translated into English, still maintain a, a really poetic kind of Germanic feel to them. Uh, which I appreciate very much. I like I like the the translations of his 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 work. Um, let me quickly say a little sort of invocation or prayer. This is what is known as the uh, the upper grades morning verse. This actually is, is a verse that kids say uh, in the upper grades of Waldorf schools, which I am a big fan of, uh, and I I highly suggest uh, if you have kids to think about Waldorf schools. Uh, for their education, uh, even if you don't particularly agree with all of uh, Steiner's ideas, these schools are fantastic. My friend, who is is actually uh, a pretty conservative Christian, has his uh, his kid in a Waldorf school, and uh, that child is is doing amazingly well, uh, and and is is actually uh, flourishing. So uh, here is that little invocation: I look into the world wherein there shines the sun, wherein there gleam the stars, wherein there lie the stones, the plants they live and grow, the beasts they feel and live, and humankind to spirit gives a dwelling in the soul. I look into the soul that living that living dwells in me. God's spirit lives and weaves in sunlight and in soul light, in heights of worlds without, in depths of soul within. To thee, O Spirit of God, I seeking, turn myself, that strength and grace and skill for learning and for work in me may live and grow. In me may live and grow. It's a beautiful little saying that they say each day. And I think if you set students off in that sort of uh, spiritual tone in the morning, you're going to get a much more, uh, a much more, uh, what can I say this, productive and um, connected child than you would uh, in most of the public school situations where they're probably um, shooting spitballs at their buddy or, um, you know, God knows what else in the back of the room, you know, trying to pass the time, right? As, as, right. as, as we used to do when we were in public school. So um, that being said, let us go into uh, Steiner. So we're going to do, like I said, a brief, a brief outline. His father, uh, was named Johannes, and he worked for the Austrian Railroad. Uh, actually, at first he worked for a count, Count Hoyos, I think was his name. If that's not, if that's if that's correct. Uh, and Steiner's father actually ended up marrying one of the the housemaids in Hoyos's house, so he actually was was fired by the count. Uh, and so Steiner's mom was one of the uh, one of the maids. Uh, in that in that household, or one of the workers in that household, uh, and then Steiner's father uh, Johannes got a wor- uh, got work with the Austrian railroad, and he started kind of progressively moving up in that. And at one point was a, a I believe a station master. So he was born in a place called Kraljevik, uh, which was which is also known as Kings Kings Village in English. So that's what that translates to Kings Village. It's interesting because he was quite the uh, esoteric. Uh, king, as it were. Uh, he was born February 27th, 1861. And um, 
then they moved when he was two years old to Austria, to the foothills of the Eastern Alps. Um, and then after that, they moved outside of Vienna. So uh, by that time, uh, moving forward in, in the future, it's, it's now 1879, they're outside of Vienna. Steiner himself then uh, matriculated to the uh, Technical University of Vienna, which at the time was the most advanced scientific institution in the world. Um, he was very interested in Kant and other philosophers uh, when he was young. He had uh, clairvoyant experiences, even while he was young, peering into uh, other dimensions and, and spiritual worlds. Didn't really know what to make of this at this time, but as he was, he was growing into his powers, and he was, he was kind of simultaneously uh, working in the scientific world and natural science, very interested and in, in astute uh, student of chemistry, physics, mathematics, geometry, theoretical mathematics, geology, botany, zoology, uh, etc., and particularly gifted in the area of philosophy, as I said. So uh, one of the early influences he had, and you, you may remember reading this, um, and this is what I actually wasn't sure about. The book is kind of sketchy on this. Uh, you know, when they talk about, in that part when, when he talks about him meeting that character called Felix on the train, who was an herbalist, and he taught him about the healing properties of plants and some of the spiritual ideas and so on. Do you remember that part, part of the, the book in the introduction? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, just to reiterate what you just said, I like the kind of the not really the contrast, but this kind of completeness that he had. Where on the one hand, there he's involved with these nature spirits and forest beings, and uh, you know, on this very personal kind of invisible realm level, and also uh, very much interested in the mechanics of the textile mills and the railroad and. Uh, and this is when the Industrial Revolution was really in full swing. It had already happened, but it was really, you know, yeah, in it full, was really taking full taking motion. Hold. Yeah, exactly. So maybe he was at a crossroads, of, at a crossroads of the old and the newer. That's a great. Uh, that's a great dispensations point. of the world. I think. I think you're absolutely. So it right makes him an interesting that. character that he was able to hold them both um, and make something out of it. Yeah, and I think um, that I think is a is a major theme in his work uh, in his work later on, which we'll touch on. Um, you know, between the, you know, that sort of tension between the, the sort of material world, the spiritual world, it's the scientific versus the mystical. Uh, and he tries to create a bridge, I think, between, between the two, which we'll get into. Uh, Felix, though, this character that he talked about, and I'm not sure because, uh, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a Steiner expert. There's people out there, obviously, that know much, much, much more than, than either of us do. Um, but I, I I could not really tell whether or not this is a real character, or not only real, but I mean a physically embodied person, or if this is a, an inner guide. Uh, the, the language in the book itself is kind of kind of sketchy, and so I, I wasn't entirely sure whether or not this was an actual person, or if it was an actual, you know, like a like a a spiritual being, or or an inner guide, or some somebody that he met on uh, on a on a different level of consciousness. So that if anybody knows that. Uh, Please, uh, please let me know. But at any rate, this, this character Felix taught him quite a bit. And this is where he learned his love for plants and botany and the healing uh, property of plants, which later goes into the, the, the uh, anthroposophical and uh, Steiner-based uh, holistic medicines uh, that are available. They even, today they have a, a, a brand uh, called, I think, Waleda, W-E-L-E-D-A, which uses the principles that Steiner uh, learned uh, for healing and wellness 
Um, I think it involves uh, homeopathy and, and, and herbal, herbal preparations and so on. Um, so that's, that's an interesting thing. So at university, he really started to come into his own and um, he met uh, one of the professors and, and formed a relationship with Carl Julius uh, Schroer. Steiner was 21 at this time. And that's when he began uh, work on editing Goethe's uh, scientific, scientific works. That eventually led him to work at the Goethe archetypes at Weimar. Uh, that was from 1889 to 1896. And that was one of the kind of pivotal moments in his life. He really started to come into his own as a philosopher and as a figure in literary circles. Um, and, and the book itself says Goethe was the, the catalyst which released new mental and spiritual energies in Steiner's own personality. So Goethe really um, was influential and his works really helped to take Steiner's um, new and emerging philosophies to another, another level. So in 1886, he published an epistemology of Goethe's uh, world conception, got his PhD in 1896, wrote Philosophy of Spiritual Activity in 1896. Uh, at this point, he takes kind of a turn. At age 36, he gets away from the academic world. He moves to Berlin and becomes the editor of a literary magazine. And while he's in Berlin, he, this is a time in Germany when, uh, when, when there was a sort of flower, but sort of bohemian flowering, particularly in Berlin. It was like the sort of Paris of, of Germany at the time. And uh, he met artists and writers and intellectuals there and became a somewhat known uh, character in, in that circle. And he began to be more of a public, public figure at that time. He was 36 at that time, as I said. So one of the things that he was developing during this whole time was this sort of hypothesis of, of pure thought, pure thought. So he has uh, what he called a spiritual form of thinking and again, I'm going to murder some German here, so forgive me. It's called Erkratung des Denkens, which means, roughly speaking, it's one of those great German things, putting force, putting life into thinking, through thinking, and within thinking. That's the sort of gist of that, that idea. And he, he formulated and experienced in himself through these exercises that he did that you could break free from the body that pure thought could actually emerge from the body so he cover, he began to co think of this as a sort of living thinking you could use this living thinking to to awaken the chakras awaken the energy centers within the human human body uh, from above so basically what he stumbled into was what he, he found to be a sort of psychic way of activating these, these psychic energy, psycho-spiritual energy centers uh, within the human uh, from, from, from outside of the body. Instead of doing like yoga exercises or meditation or concentration on that, it became this sort of way of using pure thought to actually uh, affect these centers, which was pretty revolutionary. Um, and he began to... To, to work with this and these, these different spiritual exercises and formulating his ideas, which later came out then in his book, um, which is probably his most, his most famous and well-known book, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, is how it's translated in English. It has a couple different titles, but that's the most well-known one, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. And then the other, uh, the other book that he's most, I think, well-known for is uh, Outline of uh, Esoteric Science, I believe it's called. Sometimes it's called An Outline of Occult Science. Or mm -hmm. um, yeah, so those are the those are the those are the two big ones. But he wrote over over seventy books, I believe, 
actual, you know, written, written books. And then, like I said, about 6,000 of uh, his lectures were, uh, were, were out there. He gave the, he gave around 6,000 lectures. So there's, um, there's much more of his material out there, you know, floating around in the archives and so on that has yet to still be translated into, into English. Uh, it's in its original German. Um, okay. So, uh, the last thing I'm going to get into in the sort of bio of him is that one of his, his main theories is that uh, knowledge is broken down into basically three forms. There's three forms of higher knowledge. This is what he found. Uh, the first is imagination, which is a higher seeing of the spiritual world uh, in revealing images, revealing images within. Uh, two is uh, inspiration, what he called inspiration, a higher hearing, what might be called clairaudience or something today. Uh, he called it a higher hearing of spiritual world, which is revealed in creative forces and creative order. In other words, you, you sort of hear, I don't want to say maybe celestial forces sort of unfolding and, and the inspiration and, and, and wisdom of that. That's called inspiration. Uh, and then three is intuition, which is an intuitive penetration into the, into the sort of sphere or the, or the world of spiritual beings, spiritual beings. And then you can actually communicate with those spiritual beings. You can see the different levels and so on. And anthroposophy, like, like theosophy, which shoot of, uh, postulates uh, se seven layers of existence in essence. Uh, and then there's layers and layers of, of spiritual worlds within, within those, those seven basic layers, um, different layers of angels and archangels and beings and so on. Um, so, so that uh, those are the, the, those are his three, three forms of what he called higher knowledge. All right. So this then uh, this knowledge sort of, I want to say, became the main focus over over basically the 25 years of life from uh, the time that he was about 36 in Berlin to actually actually it was a little bit before that. I'm sorry. Uh, the 25 years of spiritual exploration uh, later becomes what's known as anthroposophy, anthroposophy, which is the wisdom of man or the wisdom concerning man. And that was uh, Steiner's answer to to theosophy. He had been a part of theosophy, which uh, was started by Alcott and Ledbetter and I think, um, and Blavatsky. And I think Besant was one of the original, uh, the original founders of, of theosophy now. If she's not, at least she's, she's certainly amongst the, she was there in the earliest days. At any rate, Steiner had a falling out when, uh, when Krishnamurti was, was, uh, decided to be the next coming of the Maitreya Buddha or sort of a Christ-like or avatar-like figure. Uh, he was desi designated that by Besant and, um, and Ledbetter. I don't know that Blavatsky was 100% behind that. Uh, but they, they, they moved forward with that, with that uh, revelation and apparently there were some 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 improprieties that occurred between Ledbetter and Krishnamurti, or at least um, Ledbetter had designs on Krishnamurti or was in love with him or something. There was some sort of issue with that. Uh, with that, Steiner broke away and started his own uh, his own anthroposophical society, apparently taking with him the bulk of theosophists in Germany, which was around thirty thousand at the time. So he did he had very large following. A very large following, considering that you know all of this was word of mouth and leaflets and books at the time, and you know very little of this was 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 communicated via mass communication. Um, 
All right. So that is a general sort of background of Steiner. Uh, like I said, some of the important movements that came out of his work are the Waldorf schools, biodynamic farming, eurythmy. Uh, a lot of the ideas in holistic medicine come from his work. Uh, eurythmy is this form of movement that eventually uh, kind of worked its way into uh, movement therapy and dance therapy. Art therapy, uh, one of the, that was one of the ideas from Steiner and his, his, uh, his disciples, which eventually moved into, into mainstream therapy. Uh, so, so very, very influential. Uh, mind you, biodynamic, uh, the biodynamic uh, style of, of agriculture is organic, organic farming with a spiritual sort of twist to it, astrological uh, twist to it. And um, well, so, so ahead of its time. I mean, it's amazing. We, we all kind of are so familiar with organic uh, farming today and the different ideas of permaculture and all these things, especially most of us who are into uh, you know, all things spiritual and esoteric, uh, that you always kind of take it for granted. But at that time, I mean, this really were, these ideas were, were really quite, quite radical. And, you know, it seems that he was well ahead of his time too, because as, as you said, this is the time of the industrial revolution. So things are changing. Things are definitely changing in the world and things are moving in a, in a more corporate sort of mechanized way of doing, uh, a way of doing things. Uh, so, so, you know, now we're kind of looking back to these methods like the organic farming, the biodynamic farming and thinking, oh, we need to kind of scale back. We want food that's food, not, uh, not food that's, uh, you know, created by, by factories, right? So interesting, interesting stuff. All right. So that all being said, let us get to our little outline we were talking about earlier because I want to I wanna let you talk. I feel like I'm monopolizing this. Um, tell, oh, one thing I didn't mention, I'm sorry. One thing I did not mention was that this is actually quite interesting. In 1922, <clears throat> 21 and 22, uh, the Nazi movement, the very early days of the Nazi movements, there's still the brown shirts and it's still uh, a very sort of underground movement at this time. Then uh, national socialists in Germany, uh, began to really uh, speak out against uh, against Steiner. Hitler himself actually wrote several articles uh, uh, calling him a tool of the Jews uh, that was trying to pollute the German mind. Uh, they accused him, which at the time obviously was the worst thing that you could be in Germany. They accused him of actually being Jewish, which he was, which he was not. Um, trying to, I, you know, pin that label on him probably so they could you know, persecute him and then, you know, essentially go after him later on. Um, so, so he was not a, he was not, uh, not well liked and ended up in uh, going to, going to Switzerland uh, later on when um, they built uh, their, their, their headquarters. Uh, the first, uh, uh, it's called the Gerdeanum. It's this beautiful round building with this wonderful dome made out of wood with all these beautiful carvings and everything. It, it burnt down mysteriously in, in uh, 23 or 24. Uh, and the Nazis were sus suspected as being behind that. Also, Steiner himself, not to jump ahead, but Steiner himself was later, was, was, was poisoned. That was actually the cause of his, his sort of the beginning of the end for him, uh, created uh, some illness in him that eventually uh, took his life at a, at a pretty young age. So 
that's uh, that is a little little Nazi Nazi history that I wanted to get in there. So, Mr. Well, I thought of that, yep. and you know, as we were talking about it, and like you know, what would be dangerous about that? Because he's you know rewriting uh, you know Goethe, and he was you know another German Hegel, uh, Jakob Berme, other German. So he was very Germanic in yeah. that sense that yeah. he you know supported you know the history and the culture and the thinkers uh, in the German tradition. But my guess is that where that became dangerous is when he puts the individual emphasis on transformation, because then you're steered away from the church or the government or the state or yes. the established. Good call. And that was, the Nazis were very much, you know, uh, as any kind of controlling uh, dictatorship would be. Uh, I think that, that a state. I, I, th- I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. So that that uh, that um, that emphasis on individual freedom. And the, mm-hmm. indivi- and the individual's uh, saving, saving ability within him or herself, uh, I think, was dangerous to the Nazi message, which required absolute dedication and loyalty to the state. Uh, in addition, though, like I said, he had about 30,000 followers at this time, so they were somewhat of a force. And, and the, yes. the, the socialists, the, not, uh, the National Socialists at the time was a pretty small group, so they may have felt threatened. Uh, in some ways, too, by any other groups that had any sort of size or or organization, I thought may have been a big part of it. Too, like, in well. the same way that you know the Freemasons often are targets of of uh, of new, you know, when when there's overthrows or revolutions, they're seen as a threat because they, you know, they groups of secret sort of memberships that the government can't put their thumb on uh, mm-hmm. so easily. Um, okay, so anyway, let's get into the mystery religions portion of this. I want to let you talk a little bit about this. Um, let's talk a little bit about the ancient mind versus the modern mind. Uh, get into that, some of those ideas we talked about and some of the stuff that you had brought up before because I, I was excited about those ideas. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, he's talking about the mystery schools and the ancient traditions that were very concealed. They were very secret. Uh, they needed to be. Uh, because the ancient mind, the ancient consciousness, uh, was very connected with matters of spirit and the soul and having a direct experience with these things uh, that having uh, been given, see, there were basically two types of religion. There was the public and then, I guess, the more select. Uh, so in the public, you would have the, uh, you know, the Temple of Athena, you would have you know, all the different gods and goddesses, like in the Greek and Roman traditions, um, that was very, you know, public ceremonies. It was part of daily life of your uh, citizen of, of Athens or, and later on in Rome. Uh, but then behind, and that was, you know, worshipped and, and celebrated very openly, open to all, but it was for a certain type of mind. And this secret knowledge that we're getting into uh, more soul knowledge, more direct spiritual knowledge uh, would have been harmful to somebody back then because they would have had a sense of what this stuff is. And if they're not ready for it, uh, it would cause confusion, cause uncertainty, uh, a lot of other uh, troubles, and it would sort of dilute the the message. So it was very important to keep these secret and then have uh, a method of vetting uh, the initiates uh, or, you know, to become uh, initiated. So I want to, I want to tack something on there because that's a great point you bring up. So in essence, I think the, 
the secrets were secret for a reason because they were dangerous to to individuals and it might let's say shake their faith or uh turn them away from the gods as it were and sort of move them into a, a sort of maybe a nihilistic or sort of atheistic mindset because of the the nature of the the secret wisdom that was shared if that person wasn't prepared for it it might actually do harm versus good because what you're saying then is that the ancient mind was i think a little maybe i don't want to say simpler but it was more trusting it had more faith and clarity and less conceptualizing less sort of scientific viewpoint in other words there was like a full full faith in the particular exterior religion or the exterior gods as they were. And that wasn't really questioned so that if you suddenly provided new information, it might shake that person's faith to the point where it could drive them mad or, or leave them, you know, leave them bereft of faith or whatever. Right. Is that, is that essentially mm -hmm. what you're saying? Essentially. And then the difference is now um, because you know, we're able to, conceptualize things and look at abstract ideas in the mind because we're educated, uh, we can read, we can read a lot of different sources from a lot of different cultures. Uh, but there's something about that also that can become a problem because it can also blind us from really what we're looking at because if it's just, well, there's a concept and it's just an idea and then it's really disconnected. They were connected more with their bodies and their souls and the earth and these things were so removed from it that it's just kind of words on a paper uh, or on the page that, you know, you can kind of take them or leave them. And then they don't really have any vitality uh, yeah. as much as they had then. But to make an analogy with what we have today, I think we're also facing a similar problem in some of the pop psychology and, you know, maybe pop <laughs> spirituality mm -hmm. um, that we have today. And it comes in the form, especially when you're dealing with depth psychology and mind science, it can be very dangerous uh, because it is, we are acclimated to that. This is something that, that we are, like the ancient words, the ancient mystery schools, a modernist is uh, keyed in to some of these ideas. But if you tell somebody in a book title, you know, the seven stages to happiness or five easy ways, you know, to overcome fear or it makes it simplified and you think, okay, well, I can conceive this, but we're not prepared for that. Even the, the secret Interesting, of, yeah. you know, phenomenon that, sure. well, if you just think of something, you know, it'll happen. It's, there is a truth to that, but what the effect can have is if you read a book, um, you know, seven easy ways to become spiritual or successful. Mm -hmm. and, if, and that sounds easy, and then if you look at these seven things and you try them and they don't work, well, then, then you're left in confusion. Well, it's like, I have this yeah. knowledge, but why isn't it working? Is there something wrong with me? Or is there something wrong with this method that you can now put into question? And what you're left with is kind of nothing. You know, you don't really yeah, get the benefit. Sure. But you're also away from the more spiritual and, you know, I guess what you might call now superstitious um, because we're removed from that. Uh, so it can also be confusing now because we're not prepared to uh, well, it seems go like we don't inside and look at our shadow, exactly. for instance, to borrow from depth psychology. That can be dangerous sure. if you have this knowledge because then you can actually use it, but you're not using it properly and you're not properly prepared for it. 
even though, yes, you are getting the correct, in quotes, knowledge, if applied incorrectly, you're left really, in a way, worse off than before receiving it because yeah. you've been led down this path. That, well, it's oh, a difference. On, yeah, you know, it's, achieve salvation. It's the and in a sense, it's the opposite problem that the that the ancient mind had. The ancient mind was ready to accept and faithfully assimilate the information with almost without question. Whereas our mind is so directed at 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 this sort of thinking level, uh, critical way of approaching everything with skepticism that we almost don't have the capacity, even when given this ancient knowledge or given the wisdom by someone to put it to use because we don't have, I, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, faith in it or the depth to receive it. It's as if the soil hasn't been prepared, whereas the ancient was walking around with prepared soil and you just drop the seeds in and boom, the, the flower the flower grows uh, because they were in a different sort of mindset after the sort of, I think, enlightenment and, and all these years of of treasuring this sort of scientific rational viewpoint uh, we've we've almost changed the character of what it means to be human. Uh, we're really just kind of thinking machines walking around anymore, and we've got to break through that and look at these these other worlds in a different way. And that's you know getting in back to the kind of the, some of the details in the book. He does go into to talking about that. He talks about um, he talks about viewing the spiritual world almost scientifically. He talks about a, a science uh, a spiritual science. And really, you know, he's applying the lessons of, of you know, that, that are being learned in natural science, observation, and objectivity, and this depth of, of, of focus um, to, to the spiritual world. You just have to kind of do that. You have to do that in a different way. It requires a different mindset. Anyway, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the secret nature of the mystery. Let's talk about Christianity versus the mystery religions. Uh, and let's talk about um, the hidden, the hidden God. Um, so I'm going to give that to you. Secret nature. We we're talking about the secret nature of the mystery, and then once uh, Christianity comes into play, how that has sort of changes and 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 the role of Christianity today. Can you talk a little bit about those those things? I've given you a pretty big palette, but go ahead and talk mm -hmm. about what you want there. Well, the main thing that Christianity did. Um, is put what had been previously attributed to the gods and goddesses or this removed God, it really puts it in the individual on a very personal level that earlier salvation was maybe for the select few uh, that now in, redemption in the mystery, salvation in the mysteries traditions, correct? Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but this, you know, transformation that was brought down to earth and in a man, uh, of course that, brought up the conundrum with, you know, was Jesus a God who became man or a man who became God? And there was you know, a lot of arguing going on in the sure. early uh, centuries of still, Christianity. Still are today. arguing that even today, aren't we? Yeah. Well, what's the difference? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's both. I mean, it, you know, at that point, you know, for me, you know, who cares? Let's, let's, let's get a show on the road. If I am a, a spiritual being trapped in this, in this human body, well, how can I become more divine? Or if I'm just a earthy animal, um, that has a spark of the divine, how can I, uh, you know, light that up and, and, uh, and stoke that flame? Definitely. Um, you know, it, the result, you know, would be the same. Um, but, uh, but this hidden God is, uh, Steiner calls it you know, the spellbound God, which 
also means like to be asleep. If you're under a spell, you're, it's, you're not really activated. You know, you're dormant in the sense uh, of that it's not catalyzing or energizing in your life. And one of the interesting things in the way he put it, um, and he likens the soul um, to the mother uh, and then the divine seed um, you know, from God that, you know, this is kind of the father God and the earth mother that a lot of traditions go all the way back towards is this father figure being more removed, more invisible. Um, so you don't really see it. And that's where we get this notion of the virgin birth. Uh, there was a father involved, a spiritual father, but it's the unseen, it's un invisible. So uh, that, you know, the metaphor of being a virgin, that it's, it's born out of but they're different uh, beings anyway. Uh, so what he's saying is that through uh, this spirit, um, this God father spirit uh, connects and uh, intersects with our female, I guess our mother uh, aspect in our soul, this receptive and uh, fertile and nurturing um, part that, what grows out of that, the child, uh, which could be Horus in uh, the Egyptian, could be Jesus, could be, you know, it's a number of uh, these virgin births mm -hmm. uh, and the special child. That, it's us. It's our spiritual self. That's the child that is born within us. Mm -hmm. It's the Christ born in you. It's Well, for Steiner, you know, the, though, particularly, I mean, it was, it was that figure of Christ, uh, you know, as, as, as is, because, you know, he, he was favoring a certain Western... Uh, mm -hmm. Christian Christian point of view, just to just to put that in perspective too for for him. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, archetypally speaking, those are all similar ideas. I'm sorry for and it's and it's, but... it's our our birth. It's yeah. the birth of our spiritual self, the Christ, the Christ, the Christ within. Guess, uh, right. Paul would say, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great absolutely. Way to put that. So it's it's interesting how this you know the soul that we have, it's not enough. <laughs> we have to connect it with the spirit, and that connection. Well, and that's the, that and, combination. And that's connected the to divine, that. the birth of the divine man within. Exactly. And what he was talking about, which I think I mentioned at the beginning before he started uh, uh, speaking, was that the that idea of the hidden God and that hidden God can only be, uh, be can only be kind of experienced uh, through that through that through that sun or through that uh, that spiritual being that's created from from within ourselves. That's the way that we would actually interact with the, with with the sort of. Um, absolute, I guess you'd want to call it, or the hidden God behind behind all of this. So that's an interesting... Yeah, that direct experience. Yeah, the direct experience. There, yeah. There was, in the intro, there was a word, um, unshung, mm -hmm. like A-N-S-C-H-A-U-U-N-G or something like okay. that. Uh, sorry, my... Uh, Again, um, both, both of us are, apologize to any German, German speakers who might be listening. Um <laughs> which I'm only familiar with through this other German word, which I don't know if there's an exact English translation the, called Waltenschong. I think it's Shong, isn't it? Shong. Shong. Waltenschong. So. So, so this is the Anschong, which is like, you know, the direct experience okay. uh, or perception of, and then, of course, that of the world. So it's more of a, a worldview. Waltenschong. Yeah. No, that makes uh, sense. But, but it's not, um, but it's a worldview that's from your direct experience. So it mm -hmm. doesn't exactly translate uh, but again, he's he's so big on this that, yes, there are uh, mysteries written down. There are rituals and initiations into temples and 
sects and traditions. Uh, there was a long history. There are the gospels, which he gets into later in the book. Um, but really, when it comes down to it, none of that's going to help you so much uh, unless you're bringing it into your being and you're imbuing yourself with it, uh, ensouling, uh, which is a word Manley Hall used uh, quite a bit. Uh, then it becomes something you can work with. Um, it's as experiential as any kind of you know, physical sport, uh, martial art, or any kind of other art, such as music. Um, you can listen to it. You can read about it. You can know all about it. You can know all the theory. Um, but in, you can't have somebody lift the weights for you. You're mm -hmm. not going to get stronger until, no matter how much knowledge you have, at some point you have to lift the barbell. At some point you have to practice your instrument. Um, so for him, spirituality and really becoming uh, more towards our divine nature is something that we have to do in the crucible of our own experience in our own bodies and souls. Exactly. So and, he, and he always encouraged his followers, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, you know, to follow a, a philosophy of, of, of freedom. He didn't expect you to to buy what he said wholeheartedly. He, you know, in, in a sense, again, a sort of a Buddhist uh, way of looking at things to experience it for yourself, to try these things out for yourself and, and, and see these, these, these visions and these spiritual worlds for, you know, for yourself and then experience them. And then you would have the sort of gnosis or an, a, a true understanding of these things, not just some sort of assent to a certain belief or a, uh, you know, I believe it because this guy told me, but these are things that I've seen. He does say, you know, you need to have a sort of provisional sort of faith in things to say, you know, there are people who can see things that I can't see and to sort of take some of that on faith until you can see it for yourself. Uh, and then also, of course, gives you the exercises, gives you the ways that he learned how to see these higher worlds and these spiritual worlds uh, to, to try for yourself. And, and knowledge of higher worlds, as I, I spoke of earlier, knowledge of the higher worlds uh, is a fantastic and very practical book that actually gives you exercises, how to develop clairvoyance, how to develop intuition, how to develop um, your, your spiritual sight, as it were, second sight, as some people call it, um, and, and, and yeah. develop that spiritual eye, that spiritual vision, right? Right. And he talks about the, this higher nature uh, being dormant or asleep in ourselves. And I know the Buddha, when asked, you know, are you enlightened? He goes, well, no, I'm awake. Uh, so that we all have it. And it just needs to be roused. It needs to be awakened. But one of the things he talked about uh, as far as methodology is to take our, you know, ego personality, the world in front of us, what we see and think and feel uh, on that very uh, you know, material level is to actually to put that to sleep, <laughs> So it's not conflicting or there's not static or you know, background noise with, yeah, but it should be this way. Or my scientific mind thinks that this faith is not reasonable or mm -hmm. accurate uh, is to put that to sleep. Um, almost like as a, uh, you could even consider it being like a gate guardian or a threshold. Sure. Guardian, like, like Cerberus, the three headed dog. That was um, when um, Orpheus went down to the underworld mm -hmm. um, to uh, retrieve uh, Eurydice, uh, that's one of the ways he got through that three-headed dog. I think Hercules just, you know, wielded a sword at, at them in, the, in another myth, but, um, but that they were lulled to sleep with this music. Interesting. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm, so with meditation and contemplation, that's how you're lulling this, you know, that kind of doubt, material mind, yeah. material mind, or that sort of rational sort of scientific viewpoint that sometimes gets in our way. It's a valuable thing to have, obviously, but it's only a, you know, it's a tool that needs to be properly wielded, you know, like a, like a hammer or a screwdriver. It's only good for certain jobs. Right. So right. that, that mindset, I'm all, I was almost reminded when we were talking about that, of like the idea in film school, which we both went to, uh, of, uh, of the suspension of disbelief idea. So you go into a movie and you kind of just have to be a blank slate and just sort of let the movie and the, its story and its world engulf you. If you, you kind yeah. of pick it apart too much, you, you won't get what you need out of that movie. It's the same thing with the spiritual world. And, and that actually was, was, was what I want. That was not that quote that I was, was going to get at earlier. Let me read this. And then, uh, and then we're going to wrap it up. Ancient mystery wisdom is like a hothouse plant, which must be cherished and cared for in seclusion. To bring it into the atmosphere of everyday conceptions is to put it in an element in which it cannot flourish. It withers away to nothing before the caustic verdict of modern science and logic. Let us therefore divest ourselves for a time, for a time, of all the education we have received through the microscope, telescope, and the ways of thought derived from natural science. Let us purify our hands, which have become clumsy and have been too busy dissecting and experimenting, so that we may enter the pure temple of the mysteries. For this, a truly unprejudiced mind is necessary, is necessary. I think that kind of sums up everything that we've yeah, been talking does. about uh, just in a beautiful way. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the approach one has to take towards these spiritual things. And that's why it's so hard for us as modern or postmodern thinkers to, to wrap our heads around these spiritual mysteries and why so many people are skeptical about the esoteric world, about spirituality, about religion, about mythology, because they're using the tools of, of, of science they're using a sort of rational mindset to delve into something that is not rational and well they're two different worlds they're two different and worlds and they they've been at odds against each other that everything was you know spiritual and superstitious and now scientific reasoning and logic mm -hmm. and rationality comes in and then okay well then the superstitions belong to the past and now you know science is our god and sure uh, and we're looking at things this way and then we're missing out on on the uh, the spiritual, um, but I think how, what Steiner's saying is, you know, because he has such a scientific mind, yeah, uh, is that you you can have both. But yes, when you're exactly. Working with the spiritual world, yes, you do have to, and I think your analogy with the suspension of dis, full suspension of disbelief yeah. when you step into a movie theater, uh, we do it. We gosh, oh, the aliens are going to zap each other with lasers. Exactly. You know, you buy into it instantly because you're in, you know you're in a movie. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's putting that aside. And maybe when you're doing science, eh, you put aside some of the superstition because that's not really going to help you when you're dissecting the frog. But when you're looking at the mystery of life and what makes the frog a frog and the human a human, in the you know, spiritual yeah, sense, exactly. maybe your scalpel and, and microscope won't, uh, but not to rely on them totally. You know? it's, no, exactly. So it's, it's not different. trading one for the other, but you're sure. giving one... Priority it's just a different lens, exactly. Putting a different lens, yeah. It would be like putting on a different different set of glasses. I mean, sunglasses are appropriate when it's bright, and you know, when it's not, you you don't need them. Uh, you know, you might need some bifocals if you need to 
you know, focus on something close up and your eyes aren't so good, whatever. They're different tools for different times. Um, both so valid, both, both, both valid, valid, exactly. In for their, their, for their specific purpose. realms and for their specific purposes. Right. All right. So they don't have to be at odds with each other. No. I found that to be very liberating with uh, reading Steiner that yeah, you, both things can be true. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a both and instead of an either or uh, type of stance, which I like very much. Uh, I am very impressed with his work. I'm very impressed with the work that they're doing in Waldorf schools, anthroposophy, uh, biodynamic farming. Uh, Steiner, I think, was uh, was one of the great geniuses uh, of uh, of the 19th and and, and early 20th centuries. Uh, and I highly suggest you look into his work. There, that uh, Gary, uh, uh, what's his name, Lachman, L-A-C-H-M-A-N, yes. um, wrote a, a fine biography on Steiner. Uh, and actually has a nice interview on, on uh, Jeffrey Mishlove's show that's on YouTube. What, what does he call that? Um, uh, New Thinking New Aloud. New Thinking Aloud. Uh, and look up that, uh, Gary Lackman and Steiner uh, on YouTube. But that's a fantastic uh, episode where they're talking about him and his, his past. Yeah, it's a great listen. Uh, Christianity as Mystical Fact is the book that we, we talked about. Uh, mostly we talked about Steiner, but we did talk about the book a little bit. So I encourage you uh, to check that out. Uh, knowledge of the higher worlds is another excellent one that might be a little bit easier even to start in than Christianity as a mystical fact, especially if you would like to get started with some more practical spiritual and sort of clairvoyant meditational type exercises. That one's a very practical and readable book. Um, RudolfSteiner.org has a lot of information. Um, of course, you know, YouTube and, and, uh, and so forth have all their great stuff. So, uh, thank you for joining us today on another episode of Cosmic Eye, uh, talking about the great esotericist and mystic Rudolf Steiner. Thank you, Chris, for being here and all your great input. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, again, please support us and check us out uh, on our respective websites, chrissheridan.com, uh, and mine is uh, cosmiceye.org. Uh, the, 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 um, the podcast information can be found on cosmiceye.org as well if you if you wanted to go through to anchor.fm where where kind of where our shows are, are actually hosted and they're pushed out to iTunes and so forth but you can get to that uh, information through the website thank you again have a great week uh, goodbye and god bless <laughs>